Our world is gradually warming, in large part due to human activity. But if we take steps to mend our ways, will some feel it's too late and fight to let nature take its course? Who's right? Thank you for stopping by this science fiction podcast from Third Flatiron Publishing in Boulder, Colorado and Ayr, Scotland. Today we're presenting the short story, The First Day of Winter, by Mike Adamson. Mike's family emigrated to Australia from the UK in the 1970s, and he's been a journalist for sport and hobby magazines, as well as earning a doctorate in archaeology. He's now hard at work in the short fiction writing field. This emotion-packed story first appeared in the anthology, Gotta Wear Eclipse Glasses. For more from Third Flatiron, check out our website at thirdflatiron.com and subscribe to the podcast. And now, let's join the brave new dawn of the first day of winter. The First Day of Winter by Mike Adamson Narrated by Wolf Moon Damien, don't do this. Kira Litton spoke softly, a whisper into the pickup by her lips. We've had this conversation. The reply was in her ears, in her helmet speakers. For a moment, she thought she could reach out and touch him, and her heart squeezed as she remembered the boy she knew so very long ago. It can't be too late, she went on, just as softly, her hazel eyes scanning the data displays before her, her hands feather light on the controls of the tilt-jet transport. We're a long way past it, came his voice, and she found she could admit to herself there was no longer any uncertainty in his tone, nothing to which she could attach any meaning, other than her own absolute condemnation for his actions. You have your belief in the world that was lost, I believe in the one causality has brought us, and I'll not stand by and let you destroy it. As he spoke, a tracer began to flash in her navigation display, signal dynamic data printing up to give her a bearing on his transmitter. She eased the force input grips, and the craft rotated gently where it hung on blustering lift motors in the crystal mauve twilight of the Arctic Ocean. Signal strength peaked, and she had a bearing on his locality. A nudge of the controls, she began to run down the bearing from a range of twenty kilometers. Damien, for all we once meant to each other, please, please, don't. I've come too far, he murmured. Too many people are depending on me. It's our last chance to preserve the world we know. It's the wrong world, Kira said simply. A hundred twenty meters of sea-level rise, millions of square kilometers submerged, mass extinction. It's not right, Damien. We have the power to correct it, to bring back a seasonal climate, stability, life in all its forms. You've already brought the temperature down. The air is almost breathable again. That must be enough. Now is the time for new life systems to evolve, new balances. Humans have done enough damage. Let nature find its own way. The aircraft hung off the northern capes of Greenland, 
about 700 kilometers from the geographic pole, and brutal symmetry could be found in the fact that Damien Culver had chosen this point on all the Earth's surface from which to send the signal that would undo half a century of painstaking work. And it was her own bitter task to stop him. They had grown up together on drift station Pelagus in the days they had been caught in the Antarctic circumpolar convergence, and Kira was the mathematician who found the way out of that endless death trap, navigating the platform into the Pacific Gyre. The planet had not supported human life since she was born, and to step outside with an environment suit, without oxygen support, would be a rebirth for her, and for most. But not all. And Damien had come to stand for the part of the human race who assigned the old, lost biosphere to natural history. They believed its restoration constituted only human meddling in a situation at which humanity had already failed. You're breaking my heart, she whispered, meaning every syllable. We've chosen our sides, was all he could say. Turn away, Kira. I won't let what I once felt for you stop me. Hey, back at ya. Now her tone was hard-edged, as befitted the commander of Drift Station Pelagus. In this year of 2171, and on this special day, she knew she would let the tears come later, for now she had an awful job to do, but one she would ask of no other soul. They were both stalling for time. He, until his transmitter reached maximum charge and he could trigger the signal that would attack the dynamic control systems of the parasol. It was the great sunshade, thousands of kilometers across, out in space, which brought slightly reduced illumination to the polar regions in the summertime, reducing energy input to the planet, and which was about to vanish with the sun as astronomical night fell on this thirteenth day of November in the high Arctic. She, however, was stalling merely until she reached attack range to stroke her triggers. Her heart raced as she glanced at the long twilight band across the horizon where the shrunken sun rolled along the rim of the world, a golden eye under a blue vault, daylight almost gone now, and hated what she must do. But Project Archangel was almost a century old. First work on the vast parasol was begun before she was born, and the coming of a new social philosophy could not be allowed to stifle the terraforming and re-greening of the world. This was the overriding mission of her rejuvenated, extended life, and the lives of untold thousands of scientists, administrators, and inhabitants of the great cities out by the moon. To have the most titanic of all human constructions jeopardized after nearly three decades of flawless operation was intolerable. Goodbye, Kira, was his last message, before her system alerts shrilled a contact and she saw the thermal flare of missile launch. She stifled a gasp as she drove the vector select control full forward and the engines rotated into maximum speed flight. Six seconds to impact. She cranked the nose over into a diving turn, and decoys and flares rained from her defense package, drawing the missile off target 
to its detonation astern merely shook her brutally, punching shrapnel holes in her impenage. She dived for the darkening sea to pull out and race in with her belly on the wave crest, cleared the master arm switch to go weapons hot, selected cannons and rockets, and came in hard on the coastline. At the last moment she pulled a partial thrust vector change to bob up at half speed, clear the lifeless slopes, and bring her weapons to bear on the sensor contact, a collection of gear airlifted into this wilderness. A small nuclear generator, a control computer, a high-gain dish antenna locked on a polar commsat, a battery of SAMs, and a self-contained tracking and control unit. A single body heat contact amongst it all. In her head-up display, she saw the battery tracking to re-engage and squeezed her triggers. Now there was no cleverness, just brute force, and her visor polarized against the glare as rockets kicked free of their pods. She had two hundred projectiles on the stub wings and four cannon in the belly, and tracer and flare tails rode a line across the evening light to swell into a cloud of flame and smoke centered on the sensor contact. She broke off at three seconds and sent the aircraft in a fast side-slip to put an upthrust shoulder of rock between her and the SAMs, but all EM emanation from the targeting radar was down. She took a gulp of oxygen, then lifted over a skyline and fired again from a fresh angle. The cauldron of flame grew and sent a billow of smoke up on the sea wind. She dropped under contour cover again. Damien! she called. Static. Damien, are you still there? Even if he was, why would he speak to her now? The thought rattled aimlessly in her head, and she knew all bridges were burned. The boy she had known had become a man who thought differently and was prepared to be the instrument of that philosophy. He drew back from the word terrorist. They were all idealists now, and fought their own fights for their own reasons. She hovered under contour cover in the last horizontal day glow and listened carefully, scanning the bands. Anything? Against the odds, an emanation built on the EM spectrum, and she gritted her teeth. The power cell must be dug in to have survived and the space-com antenna was obviously some way off. Convulsively, she bobbed up into line of sight to scan for the penumbra of the signal. Her systems gathered data for several seconds, and she did not yet have a bearing when Tracer came hosing toward her from some emplaced weapon. Fragments flew from her starboard wing as she dropped back into cover, felt her aircraft switch to redundant hydraulic backups as the primary system vented and picked up a battery fix at once. Deep breath, clenched teeth, she bobbed up over a shoulder of bare rock and fired. Rockets bracketed the cannon and silenced it with a white asterisk of chemical flame as its ammunition went up. She scanned out the signal. Upload was in progress, malware that would corrupt the dynamic control system of the thousands of thrusters scattered across the parasol to counter the light pressure of the star on its illuminated face. Without constant recalculation and adjustment, 
the great sail would distort and break up, and the most titanic of all human constructions would be so much junk orbiting the sun. But the upload had to negotiate with the system architecture, and that gave her seconds. Triggers locked, she ripped fire across the barren waste, severed cables, and found the dish. The transmitter went up in a sharp blast, and suddenly all was shocking, total silence. In that moment, the sun slipped below the horizon, and astronomical night fell. Daylight would not return to these latitudes until January 29, 2172. But Kira Litton was not thinking of the scientific niceties, simply of how cruel life could be. She held her voice under tightest control as she thumbed her calm, watching smoke and flame dissipating into the deepening twilight. This is Commander Lytton to Pelagus Control. Job is done. The words burned with their bitterness. No room to express what she felt. That she had just killed a friend. That she would carry this wound to the end of her very, very long life. Such information was superfluous to the moment. Only the impersonal statement mattered. That the parasol, Project Archangel, and the future viability of the planet Earth were now safe. With a sigh, she sent the aircraft forward, her jets blowing dust and grit in radio waves as she swept over the target location. She almost hoped some last missile would come streaking for her, take her down, spare her bearing what she had been compelled to do. But life was less kind and she completed a circuit of the burned, blasted area. She saw nothing, and no body heat registered. Damien was down there somewhere, but she did not care to see what remained. She steeled her soul and turned away, climbed to cruising altitude, and vectored for forward flight on a bearing of 360 degrees true. She was bound for the North Pole, precisely 712 kilometers away, where she had left drift station Pelagus. For something wonderful was happening, and the station that had wandered the world's oceans, driven by wind and wave for 81 years, was there to herald the event for all humanity. The aircraft was damaged, but flying well enough, and a second joined her, alongside in the deepening darkness under the stars a flicker of running lights off to her port side. If she went down, they would pull her out of the sea. But the machine hummed on, reliability incarnate, so that, an hour later, she raised the station whose lights were a great splash of glare in the dark ocean, and was vectored directly into the main landing pad. Pelagus was home. She'd been born here in the days when her grandmother commanded, and to step down from the aircraft in the chill arctic breeze, now requiring no more than warm clothing and an oxygen mask, was a reward all its own. They had made great progress in the restitution of a broken world these last forty years and more, and the thundering, perpetual hurricanes of her youth were but a bad memory. And here, more than anything else, was the promise of the future, 
for when she walked to the safety screens at the edge of the pad to look down on the sea, she found it shining whitely in a pattern like a scatter of crystals as far as the eye could see, and small figures walked here and there in the glare of the floods. For the first time in over a century, there was ice at the pole as the sun left the north, and cameras beamed this miracle to every corner of human existence. To each of the great cities trailing the moon, and to every colony in the system. Ice. It would melt come spring, but there would be more next season, and the next, and one day, decades hence, there would again be a permanent pack. It might take centuries to once more become a stable, seasonal world, mild in its extremes, and suitable for every species that waited in stasis far out in space. But November 13th, 2171, would be remembered as the turning point. Five weeks short of the ancient, traditional beginning of the coldest season, it was the day after which, each year, there was more ice in the world, not less, and planet Earth had, at long last, turned the corner. Kira looked out upon the frozen patina under the stars and rejoiced. Yet part of her grieved, for the friend who had no longer wanted the old world to return. His philosophy was an extreme one, and he had made it about sides. But Kira was on the side of the life waiting to return, and that loyalty was unshakable. Thanks for listening to this podcast from thirdflatiron.com. Original music by Disco Volante. Sound production was by Andrew Cairns.